a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh, man. This is one of those days where there's there's a lot to cover and not much time to cover it, so I'm going to get right to it. Let me start by thanking the sponsors who make this program possible. They include lifesavingfood.com, tmcpnation.com, quiltandsew.com, and Ironsight Brewing Company. That's ironsightbc.com. You can check them all out. They're right there in my, my sponsor page, which you can find on my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, which is also where you'll find my show notes. So the big story that's, uh, well, on the minds of a lot of freedom-minded individuals, including me, is uh, the Texas versus the federal government impasse over uh, Eagle Pass State Park. Now, the quick down-and-dirty, you know, thumbnail sketch of this is there have been millions of illegals crossing the border at this uh, at this particular border crossing. I, I, I should take that back. Six million people have crossed the Texas border, not just at Eagle Pass, but, but uh, generally have crossed that border within the last, I think, two years. I could be wrong on that time frame. It's a very short time frame, though. Within the last couple of years, six million people. And I want you to understand, so I guess I need to get this out of the way right up front. Generally, I am an open borders kind of person. I don't want to see walls and barbed wire and machine gun towers and guards standing there on the border. And this is my thinking. That can very easily become prison walls depending on which direction those guards are facing. Right? I mean, on the one hand, it's, well, we're trying to keep people out who are trying to do us harm. But I understand. But when you build those kind of fortifications, you also can very easily keep people in or keep them from escaping from the worker's paradise or whatever it is. You know, depending on who's in charge and how they're using those who are guarding that border. So generally, principally, you know, the the principle that I see is it should be about as difficult to cross the Mexican or the Canadian border as it is to drive from Utah into Idaho and back. It just shouldn't be that big of a deal. Now, having said that, I have had to change my tune on this if for no other reason that we are seeing an incredible influx of people, and not just people, okay? It's, I, I have known a number of people who came across the border without official permission, but they came here for the purpose of starting a better life. And I know people who have done it uh, with permission, very expensive, by the way, and it takes time to do, to do it. And I know people who did it without permission. But I'm talking good people. Very fine people, in the words of Trump, <laughs> that, that actually came here because they wanted to pursue, you know, the, the American dream. They wanted to, to, to live the kind of life that they could live here. They didn't come here to be a drain on the taxpayers and to basically attach themselves to the public teat. And when I say that they were, you know, hard workers, I mean, owned their own businesses, really worked their tails off and prospered and created value for everybody around them. The kind of people you would want as neighbors. And by the way, and and some of them were my neighbors. But what we are seeing coming across our southern border right now is a very strange demographic in that uh, there are 
immense amounts of military-age young men. And they're not just, you know, from, from Mexico or South or Central America. We're seeing an incredible amount of Chinese nationals. Again, military-age young men. We're seeing a lot of uh, military-age young men from various uh, Middle Eastern countries. And we're seeing uh, them coming as well from Africa. So I'm just having to, to wonder, okay, where's all the women and children? If this is really about, hey, we're, we're here to, to make sure that, you know, we're getting a better life or we have a, a shot at uh, achieving the American dream, you would think they would bring families with them. But they're not. And the craziest part is the federal government, which, which has a constitutional duty to protect our borders, at least from invasion, seems to be doing everything it can to enable them to come in. Well, this has led to uh, a bit of friction with the state of Texas. And Governor Greg Abbott finally said, okay, enough. He mobilized the Texas National Guard, had them string up concertina, concertina let's try that, razor wire. <laughs> there we go. Razor wire and other barriers to keep people from crossing without coming through the proper channels. And, of course, the Supreme Court uh, ruled on this just a few days ago. Well, now the Biden administration has the right to take down that uh, razor wire. And Governor Abbott, to his credit, has said, look, the compact is broken. In fact, if, if you see the letter that he sent out explaining it, it has a very Declaration of Independence vibe to it. And he says, the compact is broken between the United States, meaning the federal government, and the states. And just so we're clear, a compact is a multi-party contract. That's what the Constitution is. And if you really want to get into, uh, you know, the, the down and dirty of it, the Constitution is the legal document by which the states called the federal government into existence. Now, you understand what that means? The states were the creators of the federal government, not the other way around. They are superior to their creation. And the only place where the federal government is supposed to be supreme is a very limited, as outlined in the Constitution, area where there's overlapping concerns for the states. But the bottom line is, in this case, the feds are not only not acting to prevent this incredible influx of people, primarily military-age young men, coming into the country, but they're actually facilitating it. Buses, you know, that, uh, that will come and pick them up and take them to various, you know, cities throughout the country. They're being flown, I presume, either at taxpayer expense or someone, George Soros, looking your direction, is funding, you know, the, the movement of these immigrants coming in illegally across that southern border. And you got to ask why. Now, look, I, I want you to know, I, I'm getting a really strong 1861 vibe here in that uh, Texas has stood up and just said, enough. If you won't protect our state's borders, we will. And, of course, this has Democrats in, in Congress. Well, this is uh, the, the president needs to nationalize the Texas National Guard and seize control of them. And, you know, some are calling for drone strikes or, or what. I mean, that's civil war talk. But here's the, here's the encouraging and somewhat crazy part about it as well. A bunch of states have started to line up with Texas. Off the top of my head, Florida, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Montana. Let's see, who else am I missing? Virginia. 
I'm probably missing somebody, but there were about eight states that, that have said, hey, we will stand with you. In fact, not just we, you know, sending thoughts and prayers, but do you need resources? Do you need us to send people to help you? That's why I say there's, there's a really strong 1861 vibe here. And, and I, I want to urge caution here because this is the kind of thing where, oh boy, you know, the shot heard around the world, you know, it, it, could, it could happen if somebody gets a little bit twitchy. But I think it's the right thing to do for Texas to stand up for its constitutional right to self-defense. I like how Connor Boyack put it. He says, imagine what the world would be like if more state leaders asserted their authority like this instead of meekly submitting to the federal leviathan in exchange for a mess of budgetary pottage. I've noticed uh, Idaho's governor, you know, my home state, um, Governor Little is very, very quiet. And this could be in part because uh, maybe he doesn't have all the information. I'll, I'll try to give the guy the benefit of the doubt, but I suspect it's more because... He is a pragmatic politician, and he wants to say, well, I want to I play this in the most favorable way. And he's also addicted to that federal money. Likewise, the governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, same thing. They want to stay attached to that federal teat as long as they can. They don't have the backbone to stand up and say enough. So we'll keep a close eye on this. Now, having said that, I want to share with you some insights from Brandon Smith. I think Brandon has a very solid take on why this immigration crisis is being deliberately engineered. And he he talks about this in terms of cultural replacement. And, And I want to put this one on the table just right up front. You will hear commentators say, well, cultural replacement is just a white supremacist theory about white people afraid of losing their their power. And Brandon just kind of puts that right to rest. He says, you know, it's replacement theories denigrated by the media as a racist conspiracy held by white people afraid to lose power. But he says that's nonsensical for a number of reasons, including the fact that if white people were a monolith and we had all the power, then we would simply snuff out any threats to that power and lock down our borders. There would be nothing anyone could do to stop us. But the truth is there is no white monolith. There is no patriarchy and there is no such thing as systemic racism. Do some leftist activists clamor for mass migration to replace white people in the U.S. and Europe? Yes, absolutely. They call it decolonization, but is the real purpose, is that the real purpose of mass migration? He says, no, probably not. The replacement going on isn't so much about replacing white people as it is about replacing Western culture. And we'll come back to that, just the other side of this break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's dive into Brandon Smith's article, Why the Immigration Crisis is Being Deliberately Engineered. He says, there is absolutely no doubt elements of our own government are deliberately encouraging the acceleration of illegal immigration across the southern border. And they're actively sabotaging any attempts to stop the madness. Now, there are two questions, he says, we need to ask, starting with why are they doing this, and then what can be done to stop them? In a move that he says he thinks debunks any claims that the Biden administration wants a secure border, 
The federal government recently challenged Texas efforts to install border fencing and barbed wire to prevent the massive influx of foreigners raiding the U.S. This is after several incidents in which convicted criminals and terrorists have been identified among migrant groups. The measures were working, so obviously Biden felt the need to intervene. A majority of the Supreme Court has taken has also taken Biden's side, forcing Texas Governor Greg Abbott to declare the situation an invasion that threatens the security of his state and America at large. The conflict is leading to a showdown between federal agencies in Texas. Now, Brandon says, I would argue that this is a showdown that needs to happen. The sooner, the better. The expulsion of unwanted or destructive groups of people has been an emergency measure used by civilizations for thousands of years. And the cultures that don't protect their own gates end up being erased or absorbed into a completely different population that may not hold the same values and principles. He says the majority of nations on the planet today have strict immigration rules, yet America and the European Union are the only regions attacked for wanting to limit the flow of illegals. And he asks, why is that? Brandon says the open borders propaganda, common to the corporate media and Hollywood movies, is part of a larger establishment agenda that's been active for many years in the U.S., but it's been accelerating since 2021. The Biden administration in particular has overseen the largest spike in illegal immigration in U.S. history, with over 300,000 border violations in December alone. That's that we know of. And to put this in perspective, that's the equivalent of a city the size of Pittsburgh moving across the U.S. border and demanding welfare, subsidies, housing, jobs, free food, etc. every single month. Now, he says this is unsustainable, and the establishment knows it. In fact, Biden has already has actively tried to hide the crisis from the view of the American people for years, denying that there's any threat and claiming the border's more rigid today than ever before. Anyone who questions the validity of this claim is immediately accused of racism, white supremacy, and conspiracy theory. Border states have become so angered over leftist denials that they've started busing thousands of migrants into blue sanctuary cities like New York, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. And the result has been a calamity for their welfare programs and local economy. Even progressive voters in these areas are enraged by the flood of migrants into their neighborhoods. Schools in New York are being emptied and shut down to make room for migrant housing. Homeless shelters in D.C. have been inundated with migrants begging for handouts. And the citizen homeless had far less food over the holidays because illegals ate it all. The Chicago O'Hare Airport is being turned into a migrant shelter, and the city's trying to prevent the media from documenting the situation. He says Democrat mayors are finally calling the event a national emergency. Funny how they refused to admit the problem until they were directly affected by it. Of course, they blame conservative governors instead of their own sanctuary city policies. In other words, Democrats are indignant because they're being forced by red states to suffer the consequences of their warped ideals. Leftists have a rule, never admit when they are wrong, even if it means self-destruction. And through and though low-level uh, poly- progressive politicians are made to look foolish in their continued defense of sanctuary status, there's the greater issue of engineered crisis. Why have establishment elites in the Biden administration been lying despite the clear and present danger? And why is it considered particularly wrong for Western countries to defend their borders? Perhaps because certain groups of people within the centers of power benefit greatly from the continued migrant invasion. Now, he says, we've all heard of the Cloward-Piven strategy by now, and it's not all that difficult to understand. Create social destabilization by using migrants as a weapon. 
But there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Cloward Piven is almost too simplistic in explanation. It doesn't really define the bigger picture. There are a few ways that this strategy could open the door to authoritarianism in the U.S. So he says, let's examine these scenarios to better comprehend why. He starts with Operation Garden Plot and Martial Law. In 1968, the Department of Defense, at the request of the government, drafted a civil disturbance plan called Operation Garden Plot, which outlined what was essentially a martial law response to a large-scale social breakdown. One of the main factors listed in the plan as a trigger for martial law was the uncontrolled mass migration of minorities into the U.S., as well as riots by minorities, in light of economic uncertainty. Garden Plot has provisions designed to install a large or a long-lasting, rather, domestic military presence in the U.S. if deemed necessary. And it was even tied to programs like Rex 84, which planned out the installation of FEMA camps or detention facilities meant to hold large numbers of refugees during a mass migration crisis. Now, these programs were accidentally exposed during the Iran-Contra hearings of 1987 and were kept secret from a majority of representatives in Congress. In other words, political elites designed a set of operations to swiftly impose martial law if a migrant disaster occurred. But were these measures meant to solve the crisis, or were they meant to use the crisis as an excuse to put boots on the ground in the U.S. and permanently end whatever constitutional protections we have left? It may very well be the plan of the establishment to keep the borders open until illegals overwhelm the system and the public is willing to accept martial law. Have to admit, that's, that's plausible. Also, there's the idea of amnesty and creating an illegal mig- immigrant uh, military. This is one that I think is particularly likely. He says, Democrats have fielded multiple bills, including legislation in 2022, to give illegal immigrants the option to serve in the U.S. military and gain citizenship as a reward. Representatives mentioned the growing shortfall in military recruitment as a rationale for the policy, a shortfall which they created after allowing woke cultism into armed forces curriculum. Now, Brandon says, I've mentioned this in previous articles, and I continue to believe that one of the main purposes for the established to leave borders open and entice illegals to enter is to create a migrant army, a situation in which millions of illegals will be offered easy citizenship in exchange for service. And he says, I also believe that this migrant army will be used against the American public, the real citizenry, to impose martial law measures in the wake of a national disaster. Look at it this way. With the current military around 70% conservative and independent, it's far less likely that the armed forces will follow orders to subjugate the populace, especially in the name of an increasingly unpopular leftist globalist president like Joe Biden. It's much easier for the elites to use foreigners with no inherent regard for American culture or the American people as a suppressive force. Now, we've already touched on cultural replacement theory. And he says that uh, the replacement going on isn't so much about replacing white people as it is about replacing Western culture. Brandon says the goal, I believe, is to open the floodgates to foreign elements because most of them come from more socialist systems that have no understanding of individual freedom. And in this way... The establishment can dilute the American culture of independence and use tyranny of the majority, democracy, to ease our, to erase rather our values and principles forever. That's why you hear Biden and his ilk constantly pontificating on democracy and the defense of democracy and the conservative threat to democracy. That's very deliberate terminology. When they say democracy, they're talking about the rule of the mob, the tyranny of the majority. 
They're talking about collectivism, socialism, and ultimately authoritarianism for the sake of the greater good. So there's, there's more to this article. I hope you will take the time to explore it. The shape of this secure border action will require trial and error, he says. But as long as Texas is willing to continue arresting illegals and shipping them out of the country, all that's needed is a contingent of deputized Americans to watch the border and catch people trying to cross. There may also be a need for people to defend border walls and fences from federal sabotage. But the bottom line is, if this current trend is allowed to continue... The stage will be set for a host of emergencies that will then be exploited to give elites an excuse to erase what constitutional protections we have left. And he says this cannot be tolerated. It's time to end it. I think he happens to be on target here. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I got a great article here I want to share with you from the American Institute for Economic Research. In fact, it corresponds with a movie that I watched here just a few months back that uh, I would recommend. I'll tell you, though, it's, it's, this is not one for the kids. This is not, hey, family, let's all sit down and watch a fun show together. But uh, I want to talk, uh, I want to share with you uh, the thoughts of the story of Gareth Jones and the Soviet lie. The movie's called Mr. Jones. It was made back in 2019. Now, this article is by Michael N. Peterson. And he says, the socialist experiment in Russia during the 20th century was more than a failed attempt at central planning. The Soviet experience was a lie, a crumbling facade that required routine maintenance by a vast empire of politicians, journalists, and academics, especially economists, who believed that the new nation was one step closer to utopia. Exploding this lie was left to daring journalists, writers, and political dissidents who risked life and limb to uncover the atrocities of Stalin's purge and the horrors of forced collectivization. Directed by Agnieszka Holland and based on a true story, Mr. Jones depicts a young Welsh journalist, Gareth Jones, as he travels into the Ukrainian hinterland in the early 1930s to investigate the results of Stalin's farm collectivization. Jones' report gave the West its first glimpse into the hellish landscape of the Ukrainian famine. You've heard of the Holodomor? This is what we're talking about. Gareth Jones made his name as one of the first journalists to interview Adolf Hitler when he rose to power in 1933. Jones' intrepid pursuit of the truth led him to investigate a tip he received from a fellow journalist of a potential famine in the Ukraine. New York Times reporter Walter Durante is also portrayed in the film, known as Our Man in Moscow. Durante spun Stalin's collectivization efforts as a dizzying success, to use Stalin's own words, to describe the first five-year plan. Durante and the journalists who surrounded him encapsulated the wishful thinking of Western elites who believed the Marxist future was finally in sight. Now, the Ukrainian famine of 1932 to 1933, also called the Holodomor, wasn't an isolated tragedy as many Sovietologists assert even today. Some scholars argued that a poor harvest caused the famine. Others pinned the mass starvation on Soviet attempts at crushing Ukrainian independence. None of these explanations, however, point to the fatal information and incentive failures that central planning generated. One paper by Natalia Nyomenko illustrates that Stalin's collectivization policy ultimately drove the famine. 
She writes that the weather explains only up to 8.1% of excess deaths, while collectivization explains up to 52% of excess deaths. So weather cannot be the main cause of the famine. Under Stalin's first five-year plan, the share of rural households and collective farms soared to roughly 70% in 1932, up from 3.8% in 1928. The mortality rate just after the height of the Ukrainian famine in 1933 spiked to 56 people per 1,000. That's comparable to mortality figures during the Second World War. In addition to the estimated 3 to 5 million Ukrainians who perished during the famine, an additional 2 to 3 million are estimated to have died in the North Caucasus and Lower Volga regions. Soviet officials themselves confirmed a population deficit of 15 million people, but only after these figures were revealed to the world in 1990. So by nationalizing industries and centralizing command across the Soviet economy, Stalin believed that war communism had prepared the state for an efficient execution of grain requisitioning. As one scholar writes, where war communism had failed, reasoned Stalin, it was not because the peasant was stronger than the state, but because the state was not yet strong enough to subordinate the peasant. The ineffective and wasteful grain procurements that were imposed during this period caused a peasant revolt, which Stalin quickly crushed, thwarting any black market activities that might have relieved the famine. Meanwhile, Stalin's propaganda machine controlled foreign correspondents like Durante, like they were his puppets, blinding Western media to the human-generated famine, ravishing millions of Ukrainians. Now, one might excuse Western Sovietologists and intellectuals for believing in the Soviet propaganda, which denied the existence of any famine whatsoever. But journalists like Walter Durante, Louis Fisher, and others who had a direct, though restricted, window into Soviet life catastrophically failed to report the truth. They chose to perpetuate the lie. It was left to brave journalists like Gareth Jones and Fred Beale to uncover the bleak reality of the Soviet economy, even at the cost of their lives and careers. Living the lie during the Soviet era didn't just hold back a generation of Soviet citizens. That lie killed millions, froze an economy, a country's spirit, into submission. The cold gaze of Stalin still haunts Russia today. And not until the 1980s did the New York Times finally acknowledge Durante's crooked journalism. The New York Times Company states on its website, collectivization was the main cause of a famine that killed millions of people in Ukraine. The Soviet breadbasket in 1932 and 33, two years after Durante won his prize. Yet the New York Times hasn't apologized for it nor revoked Durante's prize. The Pulitzer Board has twice declined to withdraw the award, most recently in November 2003, after finding no clear and convincing evidence of deliberate deception in the 1931 reporting that won the prize. Clearly, living the lie hasn't lost its luster, even after a hundred years of Russian evidence to the contrary. Socialism not only hollows out economies, but also makes truth the enemy of the people. And when silence overwhelms a nation, the few who are brave enough to speak can shape history. In his 1970 Nobel Prize speech, Alexander Solzhenitsyn explained that art is the antidote to living a lie. Violence finds its only refuge in falsehood, falsehood its only support in violence, he said. To break this cycle, let art drive the human heart past the land of lies. For falsehood can hold out against much in this world, but not against art. But the forms of that art are varied, with each one, when well done, speaking powerfully to the human need for truth and flourishing. 
Good economics is just as much an art form as it is a science. With good economics, we conquer falsehood. With bad economics, we're doomed. Because we submit to the lie that power and ideology can force people into prosperity. Now, Michael Peterson concludes by reminding us the day before his 30th birthday, Soviet secret agents murdered Gareth Jones on a reporting mission in Mongolia. His bravery and fearless pursuit of the truth ultimately cost him his life, but not before the world would read about Stalin's famine. And again, I would I would recommend the, the movie, Mr. Jones. I will tell you, it's it's pretty, pretty graphic. You know, there's there's uh, there's some nudity in there, and that's that has more to do with some of the the debauchery that took place in some of the higher social circles of of Soviet Soviet leadership. But the main message that comes blasting through there, and the one that should not be ignored, is that not only do governments lie, but they will often co-opt journalists. I should put that in air quotes, so-called journalists, to help them maintain their lies. And certainly that's a dynamic that we see playing out today. Those constant official attacks on, attacks on anybody who, are, who is speaking the truth, that's not a recent phenomenon. That's part and parcel of how we, we see this, this play out. The regime needs people who will be its spin doctors, who will be its narrative managers. And they're, they're very skilled at what they do. Sophistry abounds. And they don't like being called out. By the way, I don't know if you saw the L.A. Times, I think I may have mentioned this yesterday, laid off at well over 100 of their staff. I did like the, the response that I saw one, one person had made on Twitter, which was, uh, you know, I can't believe people's response to more than 100 L.A. Times journalists losing their jobs. All these people wanted to do was report the facts and occasionally destroy the lives of anyone who uh, disagreed with them. Yeah, I know that that was a nice curve, <laughs> a nice save there. But that's that's kind of how it goes, isn't it? By the way, um, I'll touch on this more in the, in the next segment. But uh, did you know the DOJ is quietly still prosecuting the COVID resistance? Midwives in New York, plastic surgeons in Utah weren't the ones who who closed schools or shuttered businesses or added trillions of dollars to the national debt, but they are the primary targets of the Biden Department of Justice COVID prosecution. I think in particular about that plastic surgeon in Utah who uh, offered, you know, falsified vaccine cards to people who were trying to live their lives without having to put their lives in jeopardy. And, and the feds, you know, swooped in. Oh, they arrested him. Oh, this guy was, was, uh, was, I don't remember if he was selling or if he was giving them away. Either way, I think the dude probably saved more lives than the vaccine did. But the feds were using undercover agents to take down midwives and local doctors who forged vaccine cards. Many of the criminals had no profit motive. They just objected to the mandates based on ideological principles or medical concerns. And people needed cards to participate in society. Anyway, it's a marvelous article by Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. I include it in today's show notes. That's show notes for January 25th, 2024. Just go to the BrianHydeShow.com, click on show notes. Should be pretty easy to find from there. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Jeffrey Tucker's article. We'll talk a little bit about how the AR-15 is a common and usual American choice. And I've got some great 
great stuff to share with you regarding the article of the day. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to come back here for a moment to uh, Jeffrey Tucker's article about the Department of Justice quietly prosecuting the COVID resistance. I know, you're beating a dead horse, Brian, but uh, maybe, maybe not. Jeffrey Tucker points out, more than ever, it's very clear, the calls to move on from COVID are reserved for protecting the ones who implemented tyranny. In other words, they're, they're still going after people who, for whatever reason, resisted or kept their restaurants open, etc. Uh, he points out politicians like Gavin Newsom, who celebrated their acquisition of dictatorial power in 2020, demand forgiveness for eviscerating the Bill of Rights. In The Atlantic, Professor Emily Oster called for a pandemic ass amnesty after advocating for vaccine mandates for employees, students, and school closures, full lockdowns over the holidays, and universal masking. Let's focus on the future, she insists. And of course, the Biden White House has largely adopted this strategy, substituting foreign conflicts as its new justification for exorbitant foreign spending and widespread domestic censorship. And with the presumptive nomination of Donald Trump in the Republican Party, citizens' hope for answers on the COVID response now hinges on Robert Kennedy Jr.'s participation in the presidential debates. But Jeffrey points out both parties will work to ensure that that does not happen. In effect, the powerful have already enjoyed a pandemic amnesty. Politicians have not lost their power nor faced a serious inquiry into their malfeasance. Pharmaceutical companies received government-sponsored immunity from lawsuits while pocketing billions of dollars from federal, state, and local mandates. The apparatus behind the COVID response remain intact with little threat to their continued acquisition of power. But focus on the future doesn't extend to those who resisted the COVID hegemon. The mandates were so feared and loathed by significant and diverse numbers of citizens that they were willing to become criminals rather than comply. And the Biden Justice Department will not forgive or will not give the dissidents the courtesy of a pandemic amnesty. Instead, the targets of the regime will join the ranks of Americans punished by the Department of Justice for their resistance, while nondescript bureaucratic tyrants continue their careers unscathed. Yeah, if that's if you hear the sound of your blood boiling just a little bit over that, it should be. That's good. That means you're paying attention. All right, let's, uh, let's take a quick journey into uh, an article that I found today on American Thinker, the AR-15, a common and American choice. The Supreme Court, says Mike McDaniel, has made clear firearms in common and usual use are constitutional, but that hasn't stopped blue state legislatures and some courts from violating the Second Amendment. For instance, in uh, uh, this was in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, a three-judge panel of the United States Court of Appeals overturned an injunction against Illinois' assault weapons ban, deciding AR-15s are not protected by the Second Amendment. That preliminary injunction was issued in Barnett v. Raul by U.S. District Judge Stephen P. McGlynn, a Donald Trump appointee. McGlynn's decision was appealed to the Seventh Circuit where a three-panel judge decided two to one against the injunction. The three judges were Ronald Reagan appointee Frank Easterbrook, Bill Clinton appointee Diane P. Wood, and Donald Trump appointee Michael Brennan. Easterbrook and Wood noted the panel majority 
uh, constituted the panel majority in overturning that injunction, noting that Heller from 2008 held that like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Then they went on to note that in Heller, the Supreme Court of the United States found machine guns were not protected under the Second Amendment because they were not bearable arms and that because they can be dedicated exclusively to military use. Now, Easterbrook and Wood then focused on similarities they found between AR-15s and M-16s, the latter of which can be fired in full auto or three-round burst modes. They wrote, The similarity between the AR-15 and M-16 only increases when we take into account how easy it is to modify the AR-15 by adding a bump stock, as the shooter in the 2017 Las Vegas event had done, or auto-sear to it, thereby making it, in essence, a fully automatic weapon. In a decision addressing a ban on bump stocks enacted by the Maryland legislature, another federal court found that bump stock devices enable rates of fire between 400 to 800 rounds per minute. They also noted both guns use the same ammunition and deliver the same kinetic energy. Now that sounds all, you know, well, I guess, uh, you know, if it's a machine gun, we probably shouldn't do this. But look, I'm, I'm going to, at the risk of sounding a little pedantic, I'm going to say anyone who's had... Any degree of training understands that it's one thing to be building, you know, a base of fire against, you know, a bunch of savages trying to storm your your fixed position, okay? So there is military use for sustained automatic fire. Most firearms use, particularly in, in, in civilian hands, automatic fire is really not practical. It's as, uh, who was it? Clint Smith from Thunder Ranch said it's a great way to turn money into noise. And I'm going to take it one step further and say those who have training will understand what wins gunfights is aimed shots, not spray and pray. So I'll let you check out the article. I think it's a really good uh, article, by the way, from uh, Mike McDaniel. He's a U.S. Air Force veteran. But he's, he's just pointing out there's some real inconsistencies in the way these courts are ruling. Well, you know, the AR-15 really isn't that common and it's, it's you know, more of a military weapon. No, no, no. It is the modern musket, and I'll take it one step further. It is a life preserver, and I mean that in the sense that when you look at the genocides that have taken place historically, we'll just take the 20th century, for example. Hundreds of millions of people died at the hands of governments that, for whatever reason, picked a particular segment of the population, whether it was the Jews in, under, you know, the Nazi uh, regime, whether it was, you know, Indians in Guatemala, whether it was, uh, you know, the Armenians in, in Turkey, whether it was Pol Pot and Khmer Rouge against the educated, you know, Cambodians, not to mention Stalin, not to mention Mao, in every case the targeted population that became victims of genocide was first disarmed by law. Every time. Now, you understand, that's not saying that gun control automatically leads to genocide. But this, this much I think we can say with confidence. Genocide cannot happen when a population has the capacity to fight back. And I know we get the tropes, well, you need F-15s and nukes if you want to fight back. We all know that's not true. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. Sorry, we've had some pretty, uh, pretty good examples of what can happen, even with you know, people just you know, barely above a Stone Age existence that, that have access to modern rifles. Very, very difficult to, to subjugate. 
I know it's an unpleasant subject, but I like how Mike Vanderbilt put it, and that is the, the, the role of the Homeland Defense Rifle. You like that? Is to make sure that uh, you and I have a vote when democracy fails. Politicians understand that. That's why they're so desperate to try to get those things out of our hands. And that's why we, if we are thinking clearly, will never, ever comply with that. By the way, in Illinois, it looks like a lot of people have refused to register their assault weapons with the state. Besides the fact that, uh, what did I see? Illinois has 102 counties, and it's uh, likely that more than 74 of those 102 counties will not be enforcing the ban. And they're not just making public statements. The Illinois Sheriff's Association issued a statement on Wednesday expressing continued opposition to the law. Simultaneously, dozens of sheriff's offices began to post nearly identical messages promising they would not check for compliance with the law or arrest offenders of the law. That's called nullification. And it works. All right, I want to move on to the article of the day. There is not enough time to share this article with you, but I really want to encourage you to check out the latest article from The Good Citizen, May the Farce Be With You. It could be the most worthwhile thing that you read all week. As The Good Citizen pulls back the curtain on all the imperial absurdity playing out before us and bids us, may the farce be with you. But this, this is, it's a wonderful play on words. And, and I got to tip my hat. The good, the, the good Citizen is a terrific writer, able to talk about heavy topics, with clarity and yet with with a sense of humor, never never losing sight of, you know, there there's a there's a good way to express this, and it's not always in terms of darkness and despair and and you know doom is looming over us. But there are some pretty hard truths that need to be faced, and I've said this before, and I'll I'll, I'll reiterate, those hard truths are much easier to accept when you know that the person sharing them with you has actually done the hard work of thinking things through and giving serious contemplation to those truths. And on that basis, I recommend The Good Citizen. In fact, I would say, please, subscribe to The Good Citizen Substack. You'll find it well worth your while. And I I, I appreciate the the ability to interject humor into uh, what seems like a very dire situation sometimes. So like I said at the beginning of the show, there's a lot of stuff going on here. It's getting crazier by the minute. I don't know how it all shakes out. I do have the utmost confidence, though, that you and I are not helpless little pawns who just must sit back and, you know, passively take whatever comes our way. You have more power than you think. And it starts with knowing when and where you may either extend or withdraw your consent. How clear are you on the things that matter? Because if there was ever a time to get clarity, it's right now. This is The Brian Hyde Show.